Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. We're here for episode number 89. This is Brian. And this is Dan. And once again, we've brought a film for consideration. How are you doing, Dan? Oh, dog days of summer, you know? I guess that better applies to August, but I'm doing I'm doing well. You know, it's so far it's been a pretty good, pretty good summer. We had to delay our recording by a day. We had a horrible storm come through and a tree knocked into a power line. That's just a block from my house. Our, our neighbors say that, because remember I just moved, our neighbors said that they've lost power like once in the past 15 years. And then in the past month and a half since I moved here, we've lost power twice. So I don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm bad luck or something. You've got weak trees. <laughs> oh, great reference. Yeah, we haven't had too many super hot days this summer, but this was kind of one of them. It was like 95 or 96. Pretty warm. Yeah. The movie that I've brought to the table today comes to us from 1965. It's a film called The Great Race, directed by Blake Edwards. Did you have any familiarity with this one ahead of time, Dan? No, I didn't know anything about it. Um, I guessed some comparisons based on the title in the year alone. And we'll talk about this genre of film, but did not know anything about this directly. Right. So it stars Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis and Natalie Wood. We'll talk in a second about where they pop up. This one came to my attention when I watched it back. I think I was in high school, but it was kind of funny because my dad rented it because he thought my uncle had recommended it. <laughs> he said, oh, Uncle Steve says this is a great movie. And then we sat down and we watched it. And he said, well, that wasn't the movie. It was a great escape. I think he was thinking of The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. Yeah. This is not The Great Escape. This is The Great Race. The Great Escape is better than this movie. <laughs> Spoilers. If we ever decide to cover The Great Escape. Yeah. So this one has been with me since then. I think that's the only other time I've ever seen it. Uh, but it's stuck in my memory, although my memory, it turns out, was a little warped, like moments I thought I remembered were playing out differently, so there was a little bit of, like, Mandela effect going on. Wow. Revisiting this one. But, as you said, it kind of fits into a broader genre of movies from this period. Most broadly, it's an example of, like, the 60s epic format, back when movies would be roadshow productions. Basically, they'd have run times up to almost three hours or more in some cases. And they'd have like title cards and little musical interludes at the overture and the intermission and the entract. Basically, with the understanding that people would be getting up to use the bathroom and then filing back in. Yeah, I haven't seen too many movies with these little musical cues. It's like, here's four minutes of 
a jaunty little number. Yeah, I guess while the people ran to the restroom or something. It's like uh, you're going to see a play or something, you know? Yeah, that's a good touch point. Because, well, like the really super long movies would have these, like the, the epics like Ben-Hur and Ten Commandments. But uh, another genre I think of as having these is musicals. Which is fitting because it really captures kind of the experience of being in a theater and seeing a whole three-hour Broadway show when there would be a, a physical intermission. But there were also some, like, family films of the era that exhibited these traits, these title cards and these, these musical breaks, like uh, Dr. Doolittle from 1967 or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang from 1968. What this feels most at home alongside is other comedy epics from the time with big ensemble casts that were built around like a central race or a chase. The kind of seminal text in this subgenre is it's a mad, 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 mad world from 1963. It's kind of what kicked it off. Have you seen that one, Dan? So that was the comparison point that I was thinking of, but I actually have not seen it, but I still kind of, I don't know, like osmosis and just hearing people talk about it, expect it to be a lot like the movie that we just watched. And I kind of felt like I knew what I was watching here just because of that. So my connection to the Mad, 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 Mad World movie is that my grandfather who I would see a few times a year. He was a World War II veteran. The only movie I ever recall seeing out at his house is A Mad, 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 Mad World, which I think was three VHSs. Like, I'd seen two before, but that was the first time I ever saw a three VHS movie release. And I, I don't know if that was his favorite movie, but, I, you know, that's what I think of as his favorite movie when I when I think about him. And also very much... Just like the audience is a pre-Summer of Love, pre-Vietnam, greatest generation, classical wars, classical entertainment. Like back when, yeah, you could go see a picture show for a whole day and there'd be a short and an intermission and, and all, all stuff like that. So just made me think of my grandfather a lot while I was watching this. Yeah, and there's a couple other examples that kind of have this format Actually, this same year, 1965, that The Great Race came out, there was another one called Those Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines, which is also about a race, but in that one, it's planes. It, and it's, it's the same thing where it's like early 1900s, like first decade of the 1900s, but it's quirky pilots. And that one actually had some better reviews, Wikipedia says. And it got a sequel in 1969 called Those Daring Young Men in Their Jaunty Jalopies. Oh, boy. Jalopy, there's a word for you. And uh, as we'll talk about, this movie also had a legacy. That's the great race. Because it actually is said to have inspired the Hanna-Barbera cartoon Wacky Races. And so the three main characters of this film 
kind of have counterparts in wacky races. Right. Brian, would you say any car that you or your family has ever owned was a jalopy? I don't think so. I think to be a jalopy, you kind of have to be open to the air. Okay, so that's like a, a an old-timey vehicle. That's how I think of it. It's like... It's kind of like a fabric top. Yeah. Or no top, I suppose. I, I don't know. I think of like the, the tiny old beat-up like hatchbacky like maybe a yugo is that what it was there called a yugo or something like that just those really old cheap ass ugly 80s cars i think of as jalopies too was a yugo i for some reason i think a yugo is like a eastern european car but type of subcompact car marketed as the zestava coral a subcompact hatchback formerly manufactured by Zestava Automobiles at the time a Yugoslav corporation. Right, but it, if you look at it, it's kind of got that boxy 80s look with like the long flat top. Right. When I think of jalopy, that's the kind of car that I think of. Okay. Like a worse station wagon. Well, here is a question. Could a jalopy be a gonculator? I don't know. That's, I don't think so. But... I want to see someone try this. I feel like it's possible. <laughs> Untested waters, perhaps. Jalopulator. Gonculopy. <laughs> I like that one better. But this movie is set against the backdrop of the Edwardian era, which uh, Edward, I don't know exactly which Edward, but is he's the one that was king for like nine years. It was like 1901 to 1909 or something. Which, if you think about it, is a weirdly short span of time to be called an era. It would be like if we had the Clintonian era. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was the eight years that Bill Clinton was president. was the Clintonian era. But anyway, it is a phrase that gets used. And I think it's interesting that a few other movies around this time were set in the same time period. Like, I kept thinking of Mary Poppins watching this which was made in 1964 and is, is set in the same time period. And Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines is the same thing. It's like people flying around in a Wright Brothers plane. I guess in the 60s, if you were kind of making classic conservative entertainment that was looking back fondly at a time, and it would be about, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, I guess 50 or 60 years ago. Like, what would that be now? That would be like looking back on the 70s. Or the 60s or something. It's like a Forrest Gump equivalent. Yeah, so maybe it's like Teen Beach Movie. Mmm, maybe. You know, 2013 looking at 1965 or whatever. Okay, yeah. Well, that's actually an interesting comparison because the villains in this did make me think a little bit of the cheesy villains in Teen Beach Movie. But this movie draws on tropes of early silent movie melodramas and in that regard it's similar to like the Dudley Do-Right cartoons which were also around this time I, I think that was in 1969 have you watched much Dudley Do-Right Dan? I associate that with Rocky and Bullwinkle and George of the Jungle right are those connected in some way? yeah exactly they're all by the animator Jay Ward Okay. And it's kind of part of the same family. Like, I don't know if they were specifically part of the Bullwinkle block, but all of those shows, uh, Bullwinkle and George of the Jungle, 
were kind of like Animaniacs would be later, where it's like a family of animated characters and the the block of time is broken up into little vignettes and like each one is a it's like a framework for a cartoon you you know like watching animaniacs you get a pinky in the brain short and you get like one following the warner siblings and it's the same thing in rocky and bullwinkle but you get like a fractured fairy tale and a george of the jungle and a super chicken Gotcha. And so Dudley Do-Right was a, a segment in those series, and it followed a Mountie, a Canadian Mountie, who was a hero, and he was always saving the damsel in distress from Snidely Whiplash, the villain. And I found out today, doing my research, that Snidely Whiplash was voiced by Hans Conried, which I somehow didn't know. He who portrayed... Dr. T and the 5,000 Fingers. In this movie, there was a lot of stuff that made me think that there was like references to something that was being pastiched that I wasn't familiar with. Like a whole, I don't know, I feel like there's probably whole genres of pulpy stuff from the 20s and 30s or whatever uh, that I just hadn't seen. Definitely some like Buster Keaton-y stuff in there. Just really felt like it. a lot of the, the vibes it was going for was throwback stuff. Right. And it's even dedicated on the title card to Laurel and Hardy. Although I think you're right that it feels a little more like a Buster Keaton movie than a, than a Laurel and Hardy. Because at least the Laurel and Hardys that I've seen, they do more with like dialogue. There's like more witticisms. But the, the slapstick is definitely what they're drawing on here. Yeah, for sure. I'll also say that I like the opening credits. It does like this slideshow magic lantern type thing with old silent movie title cards. It's got illustrations of the different characters. The opening credits are a lost art form. I, I've heard it attributed to George Lucas making Star Wars in 1977 that he broke with tradition, putting the credits at the end of the movie. And now that's what everybody has done ever since. I've read that before. My my daughters know that if we watch something that has the credits at the beginning, they say, oh, this is an old movie. That's the, something they know. So That's cool. Yeah. There's a few movies that I really dig the opening credit sequence. Shout out to Bedknobs and Broomsticks, where it's all done in the style of the Bayou Tapestry, like the old medieval illustration wall scroll. And there's a few others. One that I thought of a couple times watching this movie was Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe, which is a movie. It's like a fantasy Western that also came out in 1964 and had kind of this like very turn of the 1900s time setting. But that one starts out and it's all circus posters for the credits. And anytime you have like a, a graphic representation that kind of ties in thematically or ironically with whoever is being credited, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. It's like in uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, you know, they're, they're saying who was the assistant director, who is like the person who marshals everybody, makes sure that everyone is in the right place at the right time. And it was next to uh, like a medieval illustration of a shepherd. I, I like stuff like that. That, that is cool. I feel like you get that sometimes with like opening segments, you'll get like stylized little things that are 
not exactly credits, but are kind of like credits. And then I do feel like the, the closing credits, you often get interesting things, but there's something to be said for when it's at the beginning, I guess, where it's like uh, amping up your anticipation. Right. I think Marvel has revitalized the ending credits by by kind of sticking things at the end and in the middle and encouraging people to stick around. It's It's kind of driven more credits innovation which i like okay that's my theory at least i feel like there's been a backlash to that though it's like it has to be there so it's i don't know you know they're gonna throw some teaser in there that's gonna lead to the next movie like it's it's become a cliche almost at this point but maybe not you could be right i do listen to echo chambers of people who watch too many movies so tend to not necessarily represent holistic opinions uh, who wants to listen to people talk about movies? <laughs> Idiots. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I respect our listeners. <laughs> but at the opening of this movie, we see performances by two rival daredevils. These are the great Leslie and Professor Fate. So the great Leslie is played by Tony Curtis. I don't know if I've seen him in anything else, but he's here as the stereotypical melodrama hero. He's the dashing and debonair sportsman. A few times in the movie, he smiles and you get like a star shine of cartoon glint off of his teeth. And then there's Professor Fate, who is the melodrama villain. Well, we've seen Jack Lemmon previously in The Apartment, which was a little more legitimate theater. Not not so melodrama. Right. But I dig what he's doing here. Yeah, it was a good performance in The Apartment. He had fewer vehicles on pneumatic stilts in that, I would say. <laughs> like, that was not a major trait of the character in The Apartment, whereas it is for Dr. Fate. Yeah, he did not hop into nearly enough little vehicles in the apartment. Yeah. He feels kind of like Dr. Robotnik in this movie. Like, you don't get a little drill car, but you almost get that. Yeah, there's one that, that made me think of that. He He's like the scenery-chewing, scene-stealer, just here 100% on, 100% all the time. And it's kind of exhausting how, like energetic his performances for three damn hours he's like all in on this there's there's no shading to it and i i both admire it and and got a little worn out by it and by the end there's gonna be more than one of him exactly especially especially once we got there that's when it started to escalate so i want to talk about the hero leslie for a second i mean i guess this is what like hero heroes were typed like he just didn't have any anything edgy or interesting or sexy about him. He just felt like a Ken doll to me. It was just like a vaguely handsome in a forgettable sort of way guy who wore dashing outfits too. I don't know. What, what what's your take on this this hero type of character? I won't really dispute that. His whole thing is well, at the end of the movie, there's a moment when Professor Fate gets really mad at him and he yells, 
Your hair is always neat, your clothes are always white, your car is always clean. And that's his character, I think. Yeah. Is he's the guy who doesn't get dirty. He always manages to be looking good and come out smelling like a rose. But we get them presenting their big stunts and these daredevil acts that they do often incorporate the latest technology of their era. So it's stunts with cars and even airplanes. There's also one that they do with like a hot air balloon. And the difference is that Leslie's always work and Professor Fate's never work. (laughs) He's always failing in spectacular style, like crashing through barns and falling in the mud very much priming us to be enjoying our, our time with Professor Fate more. <laughs> M- much more fun to see, I don't know, see a wheel fall on a guy's head or something than to see a man gently step out of a hot air balloon basket. L- really terrific vehicle stuff in this movie. Just all around. Oh, yeah. Lots of variety. Great production values. Cool stunts. I'm here for the vehicles in this movie. It's all about this race, ostensibly, a car race. Uh, We have these stunt scenes at the beginning where they're all in various means of transport. And then, as Dan mentioned, kind of Professor Fate's whole thing is he has bonus vehicles. It's a lot like if you ever watched the Pokemon anime, the way that Team Rocket is always sneaking around in, like, submarines. Professor Fate has this little blimp that he can pedal through the sky. Do you have a blimp, Brian? Not yet, Dan. I'm not quite at blimp level income, but someday. (laughs) Did you know there's like not that many blimps in the world? I think I did hear that. There's only like 25 or 30 in the whole world. Yeah, my dad got a blu-ray of a documentary that was called the good years and it's about the history of the goodyear blimp and i think it did talk about that that there's really not that many i was wondering dan is there anywhere in your day-to-day life that you've maybe seen professor fate's legacy at work oh boy i feel like i'm missing a a key one here i mean i think as soon as you said team rocket that clicked for me because they even has the letter emblazoned on his stuff But what are you thinking of, Brian? Oh, well, I'm thinking of Gauntly. Oh, (laughs) okay. This was an influence that I was drawing on consciously and maybe subconsciously in Gauntly. Interesting. And Agrod is your max? That's right. Yeah, so the two Daredevils also have sidekicks. So Leslie's helper is this kind of circusy strongman type guy. I don't know, he's just got a big mustache. But his name is Hezekiah, played by Edwin's son, Keenan Wynn. And then Professor Fate's minion is this guy named Max, who is played by Peter Falk, who would later be Columbo on TV. Why does everybody have a same-sex assistant? Like, I don't want to do the thing... Where I just say everybody is gay, like that you sometimes see as the on letterbox reviews if you go to any review. But like, why was everybody just spending all of their time with one other person of the same gender? Yeah, that, I noticed it more this watch through. 
But with Max, they they play it up a lot. There's like jokes to that effect in the film. Okay, so it's not nothing. It it is interesting. No, it wasn't nothing. Uh, I I think I overlooked it back in the day, but it's it's definitely there. Especially with uh, Leslie's kind of coiffed Ken doll vibe. I believe the word C O I F is pronounced quaff, but but uh, a discussion for another day, perhaps. But Leslie approaches a board of automobile designers with an idea to hold a round-the-world automobile race. And it's going to be held starting in New York and traveling westward to end in Paris, France. And what's kind of cool is this race actually happened. It was really held in 1908, the New York to Paris auto race. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Because... I thought this was just cartoon logic, driving to from New York to Paris. I don't know how they crossed the Bering Strait in real life, because that part is certainly cartoonish here. I think we should build a bridge. I think it should be easier to drive and walk anywhere on the on the earth. Mm, okay. I'm tired of boats and planes. We we need to make stuff more accessible. Yeah. That's that would be a good life project. <laughs> Probably pretty ambitious. <laughs> but they go for this race proposal and so of course leslie and fate both enter leslie gets this fancy car built by the automobile board and fate puts together his own car he lives in a haunted house <laughs> like a straight up monsters adams family house and he's out in the garage putting together this Grandpa Munster Mobile with Mario Kart weapons. I'm a fan. He's got like a heat ray on here. And as you mentioned, he puts on this like hydraulic lift system that he can rise above the obstacles. It's really great seeing it all in practical effects, too. You know, I don't know. You just get desensitized to the CGI. So you see, whoa. There's real smoke coming out of the smoke screen. It's actually lifting up to the air. Definitely. And Wikipedia says these cars are actually both in a museum somewhere, an automobile museum, a car museum. But then our third main character is introduced, who is a spunky female reporter of the of the era. Not quite a Nellie Bly type, because she's not really a, a muckraker, but she is a progressive firebrand suffragette named Maggie Dubois, played by Natalie Wood. And she wants to cover the race. She kind of strong arms this newspaper editor into giving her a job and putting her on the race beat and also giving her a car to race in. The whole stakes and incentive for this race didn't click for me i i it was explained and then it, it didn't matter anymore then they were just driving around hanging out for for two hours so i don't know exactly why she was in this race why she had to be but you know that's fine just to get just to get her in on the action right and you know it's got this suffragette theme but it's really commenting on the social situation of the 60s. She's making all these speeches about equality of the sexes. And it's kind of the same thing as Mary Poppins. Like, where it's got 
that period setting, but it's it's timely too. But it gets edgier here. Like she flashes her leg and she's talking about men and women should be able to discuss sex. Very bluntly. But there's still like an eye roll to it. I go back to this being a movie that my grandfather would like. And, you know, he would know that people were doing this, but it would still be kind of a a hoot to him. You know, not like a thing to really take seriously. Sure. I mean, it's it's a comedy. So, you know, it's not going to dig that deep. But um, yeah, I guess there are moments where I was surprised it went there. You know, there it, it has some innuendos. Right. More edge than Mary Poppins, less edge than the apartment. So now she's in the race. The race sets off and we get this just long movie that's made up of several set pieces in different locations around the world. What struck me this watch through is that everybody keeps stopping at different places. Like the the point of a race is you're not stopping all the time and just hanging out and staying at inns and things they do lampshade this at one point they're like what aren't you supposed to be going fast he's like i think i'm ahead of the other guy so whatever (laughs) i mean right at the beginning professor fate sabotages a bunch of the other racers sebulba style (laughs) so in really short order they're the only three cars in the race so yeah not too much competition One of the early stops is this western town called Baraccio, which I do kind of like the fictional place names they came up with for this movie. Mm -hmm. But in Baraccio, the the centerpiece is this big western saloon, which I feel like is another example of a thing that they pulled from stereotypical silent movies. And so we can have like a... You know, a kick line type chorus girl music number and then a big saloon brawl. Right. And one thing I really enjoyed about this movie is the wide variety of the settings and the flavors we get. We got the Western town. We're going to have some ice stuff. We got castle stuff. Just a whole bunch of different flavors. It reminded me of like a, a maybe a Mario where you get the ice world and fire world and desert world and all those things or but more appropriate would be just like any sort of tv show where they're going around and you know they're gonna hit a whole like a pokemon or something they're gonna hit a whole bunch of different towns that all have their own vibes and kind of let us peek into different genres and and different settings and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah you can see how this could inspire a whole series right But when this bar brawl breaks out, Professor Fate uses it as a distraction to steal this stockpile of gasoline that's been accumulated in the town square for the racers. You know, he takes everything that he needs and then he sets the rest of it on fire to strand everybody else because he's a meanie. He's a mustache twirling villain. But Leslie hitches his car to some horses And they're pulling him along, and he's convinced to give Natalie Wood a ride because she is a journalist and she has these homing pigeons that take her stories back to her newspaper office. And so she says if Leslie gives her a ride, she'll use the pigeons to send ahead for some gasoline to be delivered. 
so now they've kind of got a partnership going. Yeah, just like lots of collaboration and interaction between these supposed rivals. And then I, I like how it just gradually builds where it's like uh, in... Man, you have Mario on the mind since you talked about Mario Kart, but in the Mario RPG for SNES, Bowser just joins Mario at one point and they're like working together on something. And it's it's like, I don't know, that's just the way that this movie rolls too. The race is just a framing story for shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why everybody has a partner in their car, Dan, because this is Mario Kart Double Dash. Oh, okay, yeah. It's the, it's the GameCube release. Somebody needs to drop the shell. Exactly. While the other has the steering wheel. So eventually everybody's on their way again. They're back in the race and they end up in this snow area. They're up in Alaska or the Yukon or something. And there's this big blizzard that strands everybody out on the ice. And this is the scene that I remember the most, even though I, I kind of remember like a slightly different version of it. But everybody is is freezing in this snowstorm. And you've got uh, Leslie and Maggie in one car, and you've got Max and Fate in the other car. And Leslie makes this speech about Quacky Oodle, which is a Native American tribe. I remember we learned about them in seventh grade history when we had a, a Native American unit. But anyway, he talks about how basically that you should cuddle together in a blanket to stay warm. Mm -hmm. He says two people in separate blankets freeze to death, but two people in one blanket don't freeze to death. And so he's, he's making moves. And the way I remembered this scene was professor fate just glaring at them while he's freezing alone in his car. And that was the way the scene went was just them canoodling and him freezing. But that's not what happens. Uh, a bear pops up in Professor Fate's car, and then Professor Fate and Max run out of their car and dive into Leslie's car, and then they all end up cuddling together in the same blanket. I don't know how I didn't remember this, but, like, they just all start drinking and, like, canoodling. <laughs> They're just all under one blanket, uh, fraternizing. And... Uh, I like that they were able to put aside their differences. I didn't remember this. One big cuddle fest. Yeah. Yeah. Real ass polar bear. I'm here for it. Yeah, I was impressed. Not too often that you see a real polar bear in a car. What do you think Professor Fate's car smells like? <laughs> well, I don't think we ever see him smoking, but I think it would smell like cigar smoke. Okay. Yeah. He does seem like he would smoke a cigar. What What are your thoughts? I don't know. I just, I guess he's just got all sorts of like weird chemicals and gadgets and contraptions. But he also seems like someone who would stereotypically burp and fart a lot, too. <laughs> like Wario? Yeah. He's got <laughs> some Wario in him. Yeah, like a garlic. Yeah. Or something. Um, another smell I think of is I used to go to like the annual model train show at the Dulles Expo Center and the way that the liquid smoke that they pour into the little locomotives smells. Mm, okay. I, I could see that. It's just a kind of a distinctive smoke smell. I was thinking like also leather and polish, like that's kind of got a distinct smell to it. During the night, 
this piece of ice that they're on breaks away from the mainland and they're gradually stranded on this shrinking piece of ice. But luckily it deposits them right where it needs to. It drifts across the Bering Strait and then they're in Russia. So handy. They don't have to deal with what they would have done if that hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? They should have thought that one through before they started the race. They got <laughs> they got lucky, though. Like, I feel like if any of the other people were going to catch up, they would get to this and be like, oh, well, there's water here, so I guess this race is done. <laughs> yeah, we never get to the point where they're floating the cars like in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You'd think maybe we could have had that with all the different vehicles that fate has but no they they at least keep to their cars for the race portion at various times in this movie leslie and maggie have spats that put them at odds and during one of these barbed tongue exchanges leslie tries to leave maggie behind at which point fate scoops her up and his explanation is that the way that she's always distracting Leslie is basically fate's greatest chance of winning. Like she's got to stay around because otherwise fate doesn't have a chance. I kind of liked the logic of that. I think I've missed out on it back in the day because ultimately we're going to see that's kind of what ends up happening. Yeah. I didn't really think too much about it, but I, I, I can sort of see it. Yeah. The next landmark that they hit they come to a town called Potsdorf. So we're in Germany now, essentially. I think they call the country Carpania or something. But it's kind of like Bulgaria in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Like a ambiguous Central European power. And here... So Maggie and Fate are in a car together now. And they get captured by forces of the government. And... It gets really complicated here. Like, j too much going on. Somebody had a movie script lying around and said, you know this movie that we already have? It could use a whole separate movie in it. <laughs> That's right. So let's do that. Because it's, it's this whole other story going on in this kingdom. And even within the kingdom, there's like two stories going on. Because this group that captures... Maggie and Fate are like high-ranking military officers and like a prime minister. So like a high-ranking civil government official and a high-ranking military official. And they're working together to change the regime. Because the guy who's nominally in charge is a prince. Prince Hapnik. Who, for some reason, is a doppelganger of Professor Fate. Whoa, more Jack Lemmon! I was like, what is going on here? What well, didn't see this one coming? Jack Lemon gets to pull double duty, and he's just as loud and obnoxious, but more flamboyant. He has a laugh. <laughs> that he does every, literally every two and a half seconds that he's talking. Right, and he's always drunk. He's like, ha ha, ha ha. And just having a, a gay old time, if you will. Yeah. This is the moment I, I started to overdose on Jack Lemon. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure what it could happen, but it did happen. I mean, I guess these guys were already scheming to topple him somehow, but now they've hit on the idea, these coup plotters, that they're going to install fate 
as their doppelganger puppet. And he's going to kind of rule the country under their control and replace the prince. But meanwhile, Max manages to track down Leslie. And so now now Max and Leslie are working together and they're able to spring Maggie and they come through in their car and they pull Professor Fate out of his coronation. Like he's getting crowned king and and they snatch him up. Uh, And finally, they're back in their cars again. It's like, yeah, I thought this was a car race movie. Yeah. Uh, But before they can go anywhere in the cars, they stop to have this minutes long, quote unquote, greatest pie fight in cinema history. (laughs) It's just suddenly they're in a bakery and somebody throws a pie and then we're off to the races, except we're not racing. We're, we're pie fighting. What percent of the movies that we've watched would be improved with a pie fight as the climax? Well, what are your pie fight thoughts, Dan? What movies have you <laughs> seen that climax with pie fights? It's a good question. I feel like it's been years since I saw it. Does Blazing Saddles have a pie fight in it? That sounds right. I think I think there's a good chance that it does. What I think of it as is like, it definitely made a comeback in 90s sitcoms. Like Miller Boyette Productions, I remember lots of pie fights. Okay. Like Family Matters, many a pie fight on Family Matters. You know, Max Keeble has a good food fight. I feel like that's a the elementary school version is the food fight. Right. Yeah. It's only once you're an adult that you have to pick a, a specialty. Yeah. Of, you can only fight with certain kinds of food. One camp I went to in high school, the last day, we had quote-unquote pies, which was just paper plates where we sprayed whipped cream on it, and we could quote-unquote throw pies at each other, but it was just taking plates and smashing whipped cream into each other's faces. Apparently, there is a Laurel and Hardy film called The Battle of the Century, which features a large pie fight, and that's what they're paying homage to here. I also know that the original plan for Dr. Strangelove was to end with the Americans and the Soviets having a big pie fight. But then Stanley Kubrick decided that didn't fit the tone of the rest of the satire very well. Might have been a bridge too far. Yeah, I think so. I think you made the right choice. Although apparently in some shots you can see the pies sitting off in the background. <laughs> Chekhov's pie. Right, like it made it that far. They actually had the pies there and then second-guessed themselves. But I I did chuckle a little bit that during this enormous pie fight, Leslie is walking around, and it's almost like that scene in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. I think it's the third one, where like the ship is getting shot apart in CGI all around the one dude who's just standing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like that where it's pies flying everywhere, but he's still walking around with his perfect white suit. And he's just kind of looking around, almost confused that they're all missing him. Uh, but then finally he does get splatted. I got a kick out of this. I thought it was like a riff on how he's always so well made up and, uh, never, his suit is always so white as, as, uh, fate says at one point. But now finally we're on to the home stretch of the race. They head out of this Germany place, and now they're to France. 
and speeding along to Paris, where they're going to end. And they're driving through the city streets. They finally get to the the area, the downtown, where the finish line is. And meanwhile, Leslie and Maggie are back in one car, and they're having this discussion about, oh, has the, the chauvinistic Leslie come around to seeing Maggie's point of view that women are equal to men, and, and is he able to accept a more progressive worldview? And he says that he does. And I don't know. Basically, he just declares his love for Maggie. And the way that he's going to prove that he loves her more than anything else is that just as he's about to cross the tape and the finish line, he slams on the brakes and stops just before the finish line and kisses her. I am feminist, so we will kiss now. That's his rationale. Essentially, yeah. No, I'm definitely a feminist. I love women. <laughs> but this gives the chance for Professor Fate to speed across the finish line. Professor Fate wins! And just for a moment, you get to see him celebrating his triumph. He gets the big cup, and he's standing up in the seat cheering. But then he pieces together that Leslie let him win. I really like this this way that uh, Fate was just... He was just perplexed. He was, how did I win? I did not expect to win. It's like uh, he knew that what his role is in this story. It just kind of made... That, this was one of the moments that actually made me laugh out loud was when he was, his main reaction to winning was bewilderment. Like, not excitement. Right. Not satisfaction. She said, what? What? It's like, what happens if the cartoon dog ever catches the cartoon cat? Yeah. You don't know where to go from there. But, yeah, I, I really like that he, after a couple seconds, just returns to his characteristic rage. Oh, you, you cheated! You let me win! <laughs> and the solution is that he demands a rematch. And so, immediately, they agree that they're going to turn around and race back the other way. Which I like as an ending. I think that's a, a good good way to do it. They, you know, they flip the, the finish line around and now it's a starting line and they're going to go Paris to New York. But not before Maggie and Leslie get married. So there's a quick, quick change into the wedding Barbie and Ken outfits and then it's <laughs> back on the road. Heck of a courtship there. Hey, I mean, I guess they spent a lot of time driving around together, but it escalated from... We are a romantic item to here's our wedding gown over like 60 seconds in film for what is a three hour movie with a heavy romance element. So I was like, oh, I guess we'll get married. That's what they're doing now. <laughs> yeah. So the, the three wacky races characters that this trio would go on to inspire. Of course, you've got Professor Fate as Dick Dastardly and maybe a little less well known you have Penelope Pitstop, who's kind of the counterpart of the Natalie Wood character, and Peter Perfect as the Leslie. But if, if you watch it, they're there. There's like a, a pink driving outfit that Natalie Wood wears that's very similar to the Penelope Pitstop costume. I, I actually watched that show somewhat regularly when I was like eight years old. So it was ringing some bells. I also thought uh, Leslie, the hero guy, a couple times he looked like Speed Racer to me. 
Yeah, I can see that. People should wear driving gloves again. I actually have a pair, but only for when it's cold. So, Dan, other observations that you would want to make before passing judgment on the great race. Are there some good or bad things that stuck in your craw? Well, I want to emphasize that the production values are really just through the roof on this. The costumes, the vehicles, the stunts, everything is physical and real. They don't skimp on showing it. The one that really blew me away, where it just clicked, like how much effort they put into this, is just a really elaborate, fancy cake, layered five tall. And there's like a four second gag where fate falls into this cake. I don't know how many takes they had to do for this, but let's say it was at least three. That meant for this four second gag, some baker needed to make three like huge cakes for Jack Lemon to fall into. And you just get that everywhere you go here. There's there's every there's production values for for essentially three straight hours. It's it's really not three hours, it's two and a half hours. Feels like three hours or more. But it, it really um, it's just spectacle. And, and I think there's there's something fun about it because of that. Right. This has got a cast of thousands. Like, there's tons of big crowd scenes. you got crowds in Russia and at these daredevil stunts and at the German palace. Just people all over the place, you know, cheering. And, like, in Russia, there's people on horseback. And just a ton of people in this Western saloon scene. And it the fight that they have goes on and on. And it's like this three-story building with all these staircases. And then the staircases start collapsing and people are just spilling all over the place. And I wondered, like, obviously a lot of it was choreographed fighting, but a couple people just looked like they were falling on their asses. And like... <laughs> I hope, that, you know, everybody was insured. You hear horror stories about some of these epics that were filmed. And I feel like there was an urban legend that people really died in the chariot race in Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We might have to watch Ben-Hur sometime because I, I have heard things like that. It just that, like, there's a, sh a shot where um he, like, goes over the handrails. He, he, like, flips over the front and just barely catches himself. And I've heard that that just happened. Like, wow. <laughs> like he hit a bump and almost got thrown out, but he, he was able to catch himself. Another thought. This is a really hot take here. Natalie Wood is an attractive person. I liked it when she was on screen. I'm going to be a shallow person here for a moment. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. She does get a lot of screen time, gets a lot of outfit changes. She is objectified quite a bit in some of these gags. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, her clothes fell off and you just see her in her garters for a bit. And she gets the worst of it in the pie fight. She's got kind of an interesting hairdo. Like she has these really big hair curls. I I don't know the the right terminology, but it, she's got like big loops in her hair. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost like a intentional sloppy looking thing. Like it's like you just fell out of bed this way type of look. But... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, it's one of those period haircuts for me. Mm -hmm. Allegedly, this movie was the most expensive comedy film to date. And it's like you're saying, just scale everywhere. 
it supposedly cost twelve million dollars, and with inflation, that's like a hundred million today. Damn. One other good thing. I mean, I've said it. I'm a big fan of all the vehicles, especially that little Zeppelin thing that they're pedaling around. My dad said, uh, I watched it with my dad, He and his observation was, that looks like it would be fun if it could work. <laughs> and I had to agree. What about some not-so-good things, Dan? I mean, it's just so long and grueling to watch because it's just so much of everything, just nonstop. Not really an arc, just episodes that happen. I mean, I guess there's a race, but like I said, the race is just... A vehicle, if you will, a vehicle for the uh, shenanigans, the the pie fights and the saloon fights and the something falls on top of Jack Lemon scenes. And uh, it just it's one of those movies that feels longer than it is. And it already is really long. Like, I just I can't imagine myself being excited to sit down and watch this thing from start to finish again. I would watch segments of it again for sure, but not. I don't think I would ever watch the whole thing again unless there was a very specific reason to. I agree. It's just way too long. And in this viewing, it really struck me any time that they would stop. It's like, no, you're racers. Get back in your cars. <laughs> the reasons that you're here are for antics and shenanigans. It doesn't help you achieve your goal of, of completing this motor trip. Yeah. If you were to cut out one of the acts, what would you cut? Easily the mistaken double identity prince one with the the second Jack Lemon character. I, I always like the idea of double casting actors in different roles, but I don't feel like it contributed that much here. And that whole story was just totally, completely separated from everything else that was happening in this movie. What about you, Brian? I think you make a good case for that one. The first time I watched it, I was not a fan of how long the, the fight goes on in the Western scene. But that's at least... They they frame the Western segment around that that's where the gas is stockpiled. And then it, it at least gets tied into the plot in that, you know, he uses the fight as a distraction and then he steals some of the gas. So it at least feels like it's related to the race. The European segment is not like that. It's... As you said, a whole other movie or maybe two whole other movies. <laughs> it's like you've got the Prince and the Popper thing going on and you have the military coup. And like it goes into the motivations of like the Baron and the the Prime Minister. The I think it's the Baron is played by the sidekick from Wild Wild West. The, the actor who played the uh, Artemis Gordon on that show. And he really is acting like he's got a big part in this movie and it's like dude you're like a subplot of a subplot <laughs> three layers down before we rate brian i recasted this if i were making this in 2022 okay who's on your dream team yeah so i don't love my picks but this was the best i could come up with so for leslie i think i picked ryan gosling he's just got that kind of handsomeness about him and he is literally cast as ken so there you go do you have margot robbie as maggie yes <laughs> perfect i do to that i didn't even realize that i had done the the barbie thing until i wrote it down i was like well it kind of fits i mean it's basically what the characters are here uh for hezekiah i had john cena 
because I, I think The Rock is is too high profile to be a, a sidekick. But you could get some wrestler in that role, I think. John Cena or The Rock. Man, <laughs> I didn't know if you'd cast Hezekiah and, and Max, but just John Cena as Hezekiah has sold me on this film. I want to watch this. <laughs> I just want to see a poster. John Cena is Hezekiah. <laughs> That'd be good. With him in the little bowler hat and mustache. For Fate and Max, I, I couldn't come up with the perfect Fate. I, I thought about it for about 15 minutes. And if you have anyone on the top of your head, I want to hear it. But what I came up with was Steve Carell would be my fate. He, I think he might be on the old side for it now, but something like that. But he has the same. He can he can be the the hammy villain. You know, he could do his uh, despicable me shtick. I like it. Uh, and then my Max, I had again. I thought about it a lot. I came up with Josh Brolin would be my Max. I feel like. Someone who's overqualified to be the assistant and might actually be like the smartest person in the room. That for me, that's uh, that's Josh Brolin. Was Josh Brolin Thanos? Yes. Okay. What else has Josh Brolin played? Uh, He's the villain in um, No Country for Old Men. He what else have I seen him in? I've seen him in a couple of things. Oh, he was in True Grit in 2010. Okay. But you'll see him. He's like a kind of ruggedy looking guy yeah that's exciting i would watch that casting okay and i agree with you that i don't know that i'll be tossing on this movie for another watch through anytime soon but i probably would definitely watch chitty chitty bang bang uh, i've i've not seen it's a mad 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 world either so i need to watch that one yeah the urtext of overlong episodic race films right or i would put on rat race have you seen that one i feel like we should watch this at some point this would be good counter programming for it to see what the 2000s version of this kind of movie looked like according to hollywood right rat race for anyone out of the loop was kind of the 2001 spiritual successor to mad 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 world where you've got kind of all the comedic actors of the day in this race against the clock. It's got Rowan Atkinson and Whoopi Goldberg and a bunch of people. John Cleese is in it. Actually, uh, that's when I was thinking of watching Squid Game. Like, the John Cleese character in in that felt like the, the masterminds running the Squid Game. So, Dan, here we are at the finish line. And we'll uh, we'll look at the replay. What is your ultimate determination? Is the Great Race from 1965 good? So, is it good? Is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good. I needed to figure out how to say that. Now I've been corrected on the pronunciation. It doesn't roll off the tongue like it used to for me. But that's our masterpiece rating, and that's an 8 out of 8. So the question is, is The Great Race good? And I locked in on a rating about 10 minutes in, and I never wavered from it. I did kind of sink a little lower on it almost, but then I really liked the the ending gag where Fate was surprised that he won and, and, and that whole little bit. And the rating for me is a a grudging but 
well-earned good-ish four out of eight. Um, I just think there's it, it does it's not quite a good movie from like what I would be looking for in terms of if I were watching a movie today in 2022. But there's really just so much energy and talent and production values and stuff going on and cool costumes and vehicles and slapsticky gags. There's just a lot of movie there that was kind of fun in micro that I didn't want it to add up to anything worse than a good ish. So I'm going to say that it is a good ish movie for me. Brian, what about you? Is the great race good? I'm right there in lockstep with you, Dan. This one gets a four out of eight from me. And I think it's apt that you use the word grudging because I too have a grudging admiration for things like just how many people they they crammed into the frame in these crowd scenes. And yeah, all the costumes, all the set design and the real polar bears and the heat rays and the cars that can rise up on stilts. Lots of cool stuff here. It's kind of in robot territory when we covered that uh, Indian epic uh, a couple months back in that when you have a movie that's three hours long, you can cover a lot of ground. You can cram a lot of different ideas onto the page, onto the screen, and just like law of large numbers, you'll you'll get you'll score a couple hits. Right. If you dump dump the whole contents of your brain out and, and capture it all on film, some of it'll be good. And I love Professor Fate. I definitely was influenced somewhat in my creation of my public access TV horror host show uh, by the, the Professor Fate dynamic. And so that's where it lands for me. But it's just too long. That's why it's it's not higher for me. It's it's long and it feels even longer than it is. Completely agree. All right. So before we turn around and race back the other way, Dan, what's next on the docket for the goods? So, Brian, uh, I floated this idea by you. I think it's going to be a go. We have been saying now for months that we want to occasionally check in with franchises or themes that we've touched in the past. And... We are now at a point where I think we have some that we can check in on. And I am proposing that we will dip our toes into spooky season three months early. And we will look at Scream 5, also officially titled Scream, from last year. That's 2021. And I can go ahead and prep a recap on that one. And then you can discuss Zombies Three. Zombies Three. It comes out on Friday night. It's coming. I'm I'm very excited to watch it. I might rewatch one and two in in prep. I'm right there with you, Dan. I knew about this one ahead of time, and I'm on board. We'll get this follow up and check in on the franchise developments in 2022. Should be awesome. And. Listeners, don't forget to check out my movie review site, thegoodsreviews.com. I've been publishing a new review every day, and I have over 200 reviews from my archives published there. 
and it's it's been fun. I, I've been getting back in the swing of writing and trying to get my craft refined a little bit here and there just by doing a lot of it, rereading it and trying to make it better and watching a lot of movies and thinking about those movies. So, yeah, I, uh, I have some review series going on. So come join me on thegoodsreviews.com. Well, this was fun as always, Dan. Thank you for racing through another movie with me, even if it was a slog at times. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Bye, everyone. Have a good night.